This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Uh, I went to another musical. Uh, I went with the Golden Children and my co-parents and uh, it was Wicked, which, uh, as you know, Shag, is the kind of sort of prequel or sort of... um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead type version of uh, The Wizard of Oz. And uh, at the conclusion of the first act at the interval, I was like, this is completely perfect and thrilling. (laughs) And oh my God, I think I understand musicals. (laughs) Uh, It ends with the, like, you know that song Defying Gravity that essentially is the precursor to Let It Go. It's why Idina Menzel was cast as Elsa. You know that kind of... You, you're probably you, you on, you're on top of this? I'm not, but I love this backstory. I'm, I'm enjoying hearing about this. It's this wonderful narrative moment, sort of mild spoilers for Wicked, but it's, you know, 30 years old or whatever. But essentially we've got this, like, stunning narrative moment of, like, are you in or are you out? Like, are you coming with me for the revolution or are you staying here and uh, being a part of the, um, you know, authoritarian system in place. Like, like you, you know, like we're going now, are you coming? And it has this song like Defying Gravity, which is sort of about coming into your power and being like, right, I'm this crazy um, powerful person and I'm going to like really, like it's very let it go energy, right? It's very like, it's basically the same song. Um, and it's stunning. And then you go to Interval like on this high and I was like, holy shit, musicals rule, this is the best. And uh, it all just sort of fizzled out in the second half. Uh, and so perhaps the first half, of, uh, first half of Wicked was the first part of my journey in trying to enjoy musicals. But Jack, it's a horror film podcast. And so um, <laughs> I wanted to just share a more um, perhaps on theme um, reflection from the week that I feel like we're so, so privileged. Uh, and um, part of that privilege is that there's a whole universe or a whole set of universes that you and I just never see in our day-to-day lives. And those moments of horror when we're watching a film, for example, or when we're engaging in our day-to-day lives um, can sometimes come when the challenges of others are laid bare for us and we, as empathic people, reflect on what would we do about it. Now, I can't go into too much detail, but occasionally like organized crime sort of crosses over with my area of practice, which is about people who like co-own businesses, co-own properties, and sometimes people engage um, you know, thugs <laughs> more or less to sort of make threats in order to engineer an outcome. And Wait, so, Peach, can you not go into too much detail because you might be hurt or your family might be hurt if you do? Well, this is kind of the thing, right, of like 
I'm all fun, fine to be a tough guy and be like, yeah, what up? It's the Mr. Bikey Gang Mafia Peach over here. But also I'd prefer that the Mafia and Bikey Gangs weren't too upset with me. And, you know, that's like, oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> so, <laughs> so I love the Mafia and Bikey Gangs and I hope well, everything's going well for them. <laughs> but the real frustration is they're actually really effective. So if Peach and Shag have a falling out in how they're running their business... My pitch is I'm like, great, I'll charge you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It'll take years and years and years and you might lose. Uh, so that's my pitch. And the pitch of, <laughs> the pitch of organized crime is like, yeah, we'll charge you less than him and we'll sort this out real fast. Um, and so it's pretty compelling. And I've lost clients. Like I don't often lose clients to other law firms, but I do. Like there are a couple of like – they're actually, they have websites and stuff. And so they're like, we're mediation consultants or like we're debt recovery experts. And it's like, oh God. And so, oh my God. And I've you can't work. even be competitive with them. You just have to be like, you guys are great. You take that business. It's all well, yours. Like, when, like when, when clients are like, Peach, we need a result on this, this calendar year and it's the start of 2024. I'm like, I promise there won't be a result this year. <laughs> <laughs> then you can imagine people who are facing difficulty. Um, you know, they and look, and I'll name one because there's a prominent name. Might go to, um, I, I think it's Gatto Consulting or Gatto Mediations, and and you might have heard of the um, personality Mick Gatto before. And like, mm-hmm. and he has a reputation, and and mm-hmm. and Gatto Consulting goes and gets it done. Um, and I and I lose work to that firm and other similar firms, but that's about the extent of my. Well, I won't even say relationship. Like, like I sort of really have no understanding of what happens, except that I lose some work, which is always a bit disappointing. But Shag, it's those cross sections um, when the veil is pulled back on just the amount of privilege we have. There was someone very close to me whose family member was held to ransom by a bikey gang uh, last week. And just like, as you might imagine, it just slices through immediately. Mm. Um, the situation is is one I'm not going to go through here, obviously. But it sort of, firstly, it reveals your privilege instantly of like, oh, shit, we're on a knife edge or, or whatever metaphor you want to use and scratch the surface. And as much as I can go play tough guy on the quiet carriage or whatever, there's that element of like, oh, you actually don't really want to you don't really want to step 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 through the looking glass because there are a lot of people who face face challenges and 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 there are a lot of real genuine dangers out there that are within arm's reach. And it sort of led me back to the feeling that the horror uh, non-averse, the horror passionate um, among us must enjoy. And it's the degree of sort of flirting with that boundary of roll, riding the roller coaster that you know is perfectly safe, but feeling that thrill um, of eating the chili that you know is not going to kill you, but it's going to cause you pain that will not damage you. It's sort of getting close to the danger, but being conscious that, the danger will not step out of the screen and into your life. And I sort of wondered, Shag, when we think about um, recreational fear as one of the reasons people enjoy horror horror books and horror films and look horror musicals, uh, we've had Little Shop of Horrors suggested for potentially for a future Spooko episode as a nice crossover of genres. But I wondered if that had any resonance with you, Shag, of um, the certainty of safety sitting in your couch or, or sitting on your train or, or you know, sitting at your work desk with the performance of danger and whether that's one of the sort of cruxes of the appeal of a horror film for you. Much like a bikey gang abducting someone you don't know for ransom 
And so you can just hear about it as an anecdote. Bitch, what a wild intro. Like, you know, I never know how Spooko will start, but I especially didn't know how today's Spooko <laughs> will start. So what a wild intro. And obviously I do hope that everyone involved is okay. Mm. Um, including the members of the Blackie Gang. I hope they're the great. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Shout they're having good days. The <laughs> <laughs> but, but you make a really interesting point. And I think that idea of horror being almost like danger tourism oh. is so true. And I think over the past sort of decade or so, more and more horror is used as a vehicle to tell bigger stories, you know, telling cultural stories, telling stories about mental illness, telling stories about social issues, which I think is really important. But I think classically, especially in the the golden age of the 80s, horror was very much danger escapism. It was... It was a way, it were these entire, like incredibly, an incredibly safe world to see something that felt very dangerous. Yes. And it, it's funny because it, it, this isn't exactly what I wanted to talk about today, but it is kind of similar to how I wanted to lead into today's film because those early horror films were very much about creating like an entirely new universe. And to your point, a very dangerous universe that you could safely explore in the cinema or on a, you know, a VHS or a DVD at home. Which is where I imagine your sort of home invasion type um, genre becomes a new sort of avenue for exploring post the like high fantasy Freddy Krueger um, sort of era. Well, exactly, exactly. But you know what I actually think is fucking amazing, right? Because you talk about, at the very beginning, the experience of trying to be someone who understands musicals. Again. Let's uh, talk about horror films. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm sorry to have... Sorry, I sorry. do feel like sometimes, like, you're very kind, Jack. You're like, Peach, we're on a wavelength. You're like, you somehow always come up with a super relevant intro and make it happen. And I'm like, oh, maybe eight times out of ten. Like, so, <laughs> sometimes it's a spanner in the works type, type of conversation. Well, look, we're not in holiday mode anymore. We are no back. Way. But a couple of weeks ago, I had that golden opportunity to mm. go to a secondhand store and buy some DVDs. And I think last episode during Misery, I said that I found two horror DVDs and then ended up buying both of them. And there's a thing that I think happens in the streaming era that we're in now where it's a lot easier to say no to something. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot easier yes. to be like, oh, you know what? I don't really like a werewolf movie. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to read anything. I'll just move on to the next thing. Or, oh, I don't like that. I, like, it's a lot easier to just quickly find something else because you're looking for something that meets your exact needs or your exact taste, and you discard a lot of things that you might have watched by accident. Yeah, it's the tyranny of options, right? Of like, you know, when, when you and I were kids on Sunday night, 8.30 p.m., there would be three films on on the three primetime um, television stations and they're one like you're watching one of them or you're flicking between <laughs> them like that's it that's what's on and that's the end of the conversation really but but when you've got like unlimited you're more or less unlimited access to more or less every single film ever made mm. there must be that feeling of like oh this is all right but yeah. let's but maybe you'll find something better so the other film i found is a film i've never watched for i think two reasons one of which i mentioned before 
I've mm. never really found werewolves scary. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to enjoy this. The other reason, it's always had this tag, which I don't think is right, having watched it now, of being a horror comedy. And I just, like, I, th- th- it's weird because there are definitely horror comedies I really liked. You know, Tucker and mm. Dale versus Evil, one of them, you know, a very good example of a horror comedy that's excellent. So I've always put off watching this film. But when I put up these two DVDs, yes, overwhelmingly people were like, pick misery, let's do misery. Mm. A number of people, and a number of people, and people, like, it feels like the people who are members of Feel Bad Club, the people who follow us, the people who listen to this podcast, know more about horror than I do often. Yes. And we're basically like, there, there were a couple of people who were like, look, they're both good. This other film's the better film, but I'm sure you should just go with misery. And I was just really intrigued because people loved this film. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to buy them both. And I don't really have any option, many options because I'm at this holiday house with a DVD player. So I'm going to just watch both of them. And it's one of those beautiful experiences I'm glad I can share with you. Because I had the same experience too, where it's like, Peach, this is, this is what horror is all about, right? Like at its core, Peach, this is a whole new universe yes. that this film delivered to me. And it was so short too. It was properly like, it was 97 minutes. It felt like it was 50. It just breezed nice. by. So today, Peach, we are doing a classic that somehow after over 200 episodes, we've never covered, covered and I'm glad we're getting to it. Yes. The 1981 horror comedy, although I don't necessarily think it really is much of a comedy, An American Werewolf in London. Yes. Trailer. Well, let's see... Oh, yeah, let's watch the 1981 trailer. It'll be a single shot. Let's do it. (laughs) It'll be so boring. (laughs) They offered the modern trailer, but I felt like that'd be unfair. Isn't this fun? Lovely stroll on the moors. No, this is a modern version, but I'm I'm into it. Did you hear that? I heard that. What is it? You think it's a dog? Nice doggy. Good boy. What happened to them? Oh, the police report said they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. A wolf. My friend Jack was just here. Ah! Told me that I will become a monster in two days. Your dead friend, Jack. Yes. Gotta believe me, David. Believe what? You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. A what? You'll become. I know. I know. Monster. Run! Good lord. Sick, sick, sick. I definitely watched a modern trailer. It was <laughs> it was thrilling. It was entertaining. Jack, let's go. <laughs> no, but this yeah. is look, this is a film from 1981. It's a werewolf movie. It's a horror comedy. So against pretty much every possible odd, this is yes. one of those films where I was like, fuck, maybe we were wrong. Maybe movies are great. Maybe, <sighs> maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe in that we, we, we've just been watching. And look, I'm not the first person to be like streaming's kind of eroded our pleasure in watching things. But it just, at the end of the day, this podcast was always about our love of horror. I talked about our, yes. you know, my love of horror films. I talked about this last week. And this is just another example of me just enjoying the shit out of sitting down and watching a horror film and being surprised by what happened. 
I'm so about this, Shag. You're at the peach at Wicked interval uh, phase. I'm so, I'm so excited. So I, I haven't actually done all that much research on this. Like, I mean, this was directed by a guy Fucking called John. Fucking hell. L- what are we? Like- <laughs> <laughs> no, but I guess, I guess what's so important about this one for me is this isn't me being mm. like, hey, Peach, here's another film you should know about. This is a classic. Here's all the reasons, blah, blah. This is yeah. me being like, Peach, I had, this is being a horror watcher. This is yes. an experience I had, and I want you to have it with me because this is just, this is really a wonderful film, and I'm so happy to be sharing it with you. But I will say it is a cool story in its genesis because it was created by a guy called John Landis who you might know. His CV is ridiculous. Like I do for some reason, yeah. He directed things like Animal House, The Blues Brothers, The Three Amigos, Clue, just just very famous 80s, late 70s, early 80s comedy films. Like Saturday Night Live-y type comedy films. Yeah. Okay. And he had to direct a bunch of those before they let him make this film. Because oh, really? Nish- he was like, yeah. I can't wait to make American Werewolf in London. Well, well, basically, he wrote. I think he wrote this in the late 60s. And yeah, wow. The feedback was basically like, it's too funny to be a horror, but it's too scary to be a comedy. Again, the the only thing that's missing watching it in 2024, I'm like, I didn't laugh once. And at no point was I like, lol. Like, it's the, the elements of humor in this film might have been revolutionary in 1981, but humor in horror is so common now that it it doesn't come across as a, as a comedy at all. And few things age worse than humor. Oh. You know... Like where it's, uh, I mean, your parents must have played you films from the past, maybe when you were a kid, that's like, get ready to watch our favorite film. And <laughs> like you're just like, oh, this is compl- entirely incomprehensible. <laughs> you know, or like, like just really the- inappropriate. Just like you, like, you can't make these jokes anymore, guys. Well, yeah, like I still remember my parents showed me 10, that Bo Derek film where it's like, like the central conceit is she really conforms to Western beauty standards. And like there's an early scene where like a, like a guy who's like deathly allergic to bees who will die if he gets stung by a bee is like stuck near a bouquet of flowers where there's a bee buzzing around. And like the music's like, dip, dip, dip. Oh, what's going to happen with this crazy bee? And it's like, fuck, like we're watching this guy. Like he might, we just learned that he might die. <laughs> and it was really funny because my parents were like, yeah, I remember this being a lot funnier than, <laughs> than it is. So look, so he, so the humor's not quite there, but, mm. but he, he basically had to prove himself by directing all these really famous comedies. I think this yeah, comes wow. after the Blues Brothers, which again is, you know, one of those like highly iconic, highly successful 80s mm. comedy films. So this film comes out, it's become a cult film, and rightly so. It's, I think it might be the only good werewolf film I can think of. I can't think of another good werewolf film. Was the Jack Nicholson one well regarded? What's the Jack Nicholson one? Oh, I want to call it Hal, or I want to call it Wolf. Or I want, uh, well, I want to call it that sounds Jack familiar. Nicholson, werewolf film, Wikipedia. Wolf, a romantic horror film. Well, maybe we should do that one next time. Michelle <laughs> Pfeiffer's in there. Okay. <laughs> it's set in Vermont as well. It's exciting. <laughs> no, maybe maybe we'll do Wolf, or maybe we won't do Wolf, depending on how this episode goes. 
Well, anyway, okay. So this is an American werewolf in London from mm. 1981. Okay. Nice. So it begins with two American graduate students from New York City, David Kessler and Jack Goodman, who are backpacking across the moors in Yorkshire. I assume backpacking is a global term, even though they've used the term trekking here, but they're clearly backpacking. They're doing that classic post-high school, pre-college ritual of- Gap year, yep. Yeah, doing a gap year, putting everything into a backpack. And I don't know if that experience is exactly the same in 2024, where almost every corner of the globe is accessible right now on my phone via Google Maps. Yeah, it's funny, right? You and I both did it, right? Mm. And I look back on it with great fondness, and it did feel like an English-speaking country with a culture almost identical to mine was nonetheless a totally different planet. (laughs) Um, So I wonder if, yeah, with the shrinking of the world, whether the experience is the same. I spent six months in Spain in the early 2000s, and I almost have no documentation from that. There (laughs) There are no photos, no videos a couple of letters and documents, it exists in my mind. Amazing. Like that is, that is wild to think about now in 2024. Mm. Anyway, all right. So there's some dialogue where they're like, what are we doing in Yorkshire? We could be in Paris or we could be in wherever. But they started in the UK and they're in the north and they're trekking across the moors in Yorkshire. As night falls, nice. they stop at a pub called The Slaughtered Lamb I love Great name. British pub names. They're amazing. I love yep. the fact that they must knowingly know that when they use the cock in all, it's always like the cock and balls. <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's like they do that. They must be intentional when, when, that, when that happens so often. I do, I do wonder. Like, firstly, I've never heard a bad English pub name ever. Never, never. Um, despite the fact that the business model or, or was or has been fucking horrifically shit, they still managed to cling on to their excellent names. But there are things like Lecoq Sportif and that kind of thing that really just, or even the French Connection UK that seemed to have, to me, you know, as a child, thrillingly swear word adjacent <laughs> names. <laughs> yeah. There was a kid caught with a surname Handcock at my, like, school, at my primary school, and I was like, well, that's the funniest surname I've ever heard. But anyway, so as night falls, they stop at the Slaughtered Lamb, a local pub. When they go in, it's that sort of classic outsiders scene yes. where these two Americans in bright clothes walk into this English pub on a cold night. Everyone's rugged up in sort of very, like like hunting gear apparel, essentially. Yeah. English shepherd gear, yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's exactly right. English shepherd gear. There is, uh, like, there's total silence as they walk in. The only woman in the bar is the sort of matron behind the bar, who is very cold to them when they ask for things. They eventually order a tea from her and sit down. When they notice on the wall is a five-pointed star. And we know as horror fans, especially horror fans in 2024, Mm. that that's a pentagram. When they ask about it, the pub growers grow hostile and they leave. But when they're leaving... There's sort of like this internal argument between the pub goers who are like, you can't let them go out there. And there's sort of a back and to and fro between being like, they're not our responsibility. No, you can't let them go out there. I'm I'm just going to wash my hands of it. I'm just going to sit here and drink my beer. And they give them the advice to stay on the roads and stay off the moors. 
The moors, I think, are just nice. grassland. Is that what moors are? Yeah, fields. Like I like I mainly know it from you know Jane Austen. Um, no, what am I trying to say? Uh, Heathcliff Bell. and Cappy. Who was Ellis Bell? Elizabeth Bronte and yeah. Charlotte. Wuthering Heights. Yeah, the Bronte sisters. Wuthering Heights. Yeah. Wuthering Heights. That's yeah, what yeah. we're talking about. David and Jack leave, and they as they as they're walking, they realize because it's so dark, they've wandered off the road and they're on the moors, and they start to freak out. So they're like, "Let's walk back to the pub." And it's when they hear a howl. Nice. And. They try to make their way back to where they think the road is, but they're totally lost. And out of nowhere, a vicious creature who we don't quite see attacks them. Jack is killed and David is seriously injured. As David is almost about to be killed, like he's being torn apart, the villagers appear with guns. They shoot the beast dead. And David turns to the side and instead of seeing a beast... He sees a nude dead man lying next to him before passing out. Oh, that's really good. Right? Yes. David wakes up three weeks later in a London hospital. Inspector Villiers, who is like a a cop with an assistant, interviews David and informs him that the locals reported that an escaped lunatic attacked him and Jack. David insists a rabid dog or wolf attacked them, but... Basically, the detective's like, well, you've got witnesses and the body we have is a person. So it's case yeah. closed. I love that the detective came by to be like, hey, no questions. <laughs> I'm just telling you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so while he's in hospital, an undead Jack, so remember his friend, an undead Jack appears to David and explains that he was attacked by a werewolf And since David was bitten and didn't die, he's now a werewolf too. Not only that, Jack is now cursed to walk the earth in limbo, neither dead nor alive, until the wolf's bloodline is severed. Jack urges David to kill himself before the next full moon so Jack can have some rest and David doesn't slaughter anybody else. That's pretty intense. Like, Shag, if Undead Peach came to you, it's like, woof. Jack, just kill yourself. But you know me pretty well. How would you encourage me to, you know, because it, cause you're not being like, like you're not telling somebody to be like, hey, you need to, you know, take your own life. You're telling somebody for the good of the world, you need mm. to do this. How would you convince me? Uh, depends on how generous I was feeling as an undead person. Like sleep and mental health are so closely connected that I think I would just deprive you of sleep. <laughs> and then be like, mm, must, like <laughs> must be needing a rest. <laughs> so, 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 I think that's like such an underrated way to go mad of like, yeah, having trouble sleeping. Apparently there is a condition in which you can never fall asleep and you eventually die. Oh, my God. Well, that's, that's, that's how I'd get you, I think. <laughs> how, how would you get me? Would you be like, Peach, everyone would be really, <laughs> everyone here in limbo would be really excited if... Um, Peach, I, I think all I'd have to do is be like, hey, for the good of these, for the good of these people, you're probably going to have to do this. I think you'd just be like, yep, okay. Yeah, I'm like, oh, fuck, really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there'd be much convincing. All right, oh. okay. <laughs> you're probably <Okay>. right. <laughs> this is really grim. No, it's not grim. I, I mean, like, as in, like, 
you will do you are the one that's like oh well i gotta i gotta do this right now like <laughs> i would do that th- but i would also be like this is the thing you believe peach and you'd be like i do believe that okay let's yeah. do this <laughs> you'd incept me <laughs> <laughs> all right okay now dr hirsch who is looking after david at hospital mm. has some concerns about what's happening and realizes something's amiss So he visits the slaughtered lamb to investigate, suspecting that David might have been influenced by local superstitions. So he's not being like, you've been hurt by a werewolf, but he is like, you think you've been hurt by a werewolf, and I'm worried if we release you, you're going to be a harm to the community. Yes. But when asked about the incident, the pub goers deny any knowledge of David, Jack, or the attack. However, one distraught pub goer privately tells Dr. Hirsch that David will endanger other people when he transforms. Mm. This film is all set up for one scene at the end. Like, two scenes, but really one scene at the end. I'm excited. Upon being released from hospital, David stays with Alex Price. So there, there are two things that haven't aged well in this film, besides the humour. One of which is the dynamic in hospitals. So in this film... All doctors are the bosses, uh, and they're all men. Uh, and all nurses are basically secretaries, and they're all young yeah. women. And so that dynamic is fucked. That dynamic <sighs> is totally fucked. And, you know, there's a moment where it's basically like, you know, Miss Price, you don't, you're not needed in this room anymore sort of thing. And I was watching like, this oh, with sorry, Adele. Doctor. <laughs> no, but I was watching this with Adele. And I was like, what would you do if a doctor said that to you in like 2024? And she's like, HR would get involved and I would not be at fault. But so, uh, so that hasn't aged well. But also like the sexy young nurse basically being horny for their patients. It's like, so, so basically... This guy has been in a coma, but she just thinks he's really hot. So for basically the moment he wakes up, she's like, hey, so that's like that. Well, you can ask Adele about that as well. How many of her patients is she attracted to? (laughs) Especially if you're a medical professional, I can't imagine you being like, I reckon this person will have a bit of swag when they wake up from their coma. And I just don't think you would. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's a job. And Mm. you, you both have humanity for the people you're treating. But at the end of the day, they're people you're treating. Mm. All right, so upon being released from hospital, David stays with Alex Price, the pretty young nurse who cared for him. Even oh that my gosh, language. Come back to my house, governor, or some like awful accented yeah, thing. But okay, so upon being released from hospital, David stays with Alex Price, the pretty young nurse who cared for him. There's also like, it starts with this like. She basically like she basically like walks around like it's the, like this film is so strange. So they get home and she's like, so here's the living room, and he's like, uh huh. Like and here's the kitchen. He's like, mm, nice kitchen. Like here's the bedroom, and he's like, cool. She's like, I'm gonna have a shower. He's like, cool. And then they have <laughs> sex for like a very tasteful eighty sex scene for about two minutes. And apparently, the the director, if he could do it all again, would have made this sex scene way more explicit than it is. It's a lot of hugging and it's basically hug sex it's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of hug sex and well-placed arms that are blocking nipples that's kind of what's happening in the sex scene okay and so john landis says on my deathbed i've got one regret <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> 
It probably still keeps him up at night. <laughs> All right. Okay. 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 So I don't know why that's the funniest thing I've so, ever heard. It's so it is. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, what? Why? I mean, but maybe. Even, like, I don't even understand the regret. Like, it's a, does he go back and watch the film every six months? It's just like, oh, It's like I could have seen so much more. <laughs> More positions. Anyway, all right, okay. Alex tells David that she is worried about his mental state. Jack, now even more decayed, appears and warns David that he will become a werewolf the next night and again advises him to kill himself and to avoid killing innocent people. I must say the undead mentor is an element of the werewolf myth that I have no knowledge of. I, I think I think it's created for this film, I think. Okay. It feels like something borrowed from the vampire mythology. Yeah, you have a familiar or something, don't you? That idea of people being undead and like living staying in a limbo state. But I yeah, I don't know. Like maybe it is canon to the original werewolf like I don't know if there are original werewolf myths. I don't know if they were just created by film studios in the thirties or whatever, but I, I think it adds a degree to this that I think is awesome. The other thing yeah. that's missing here. What I love about this film, David's not hiding this with anyone. Anyone, he, so he told the doctor, and now he's told Alex. He's like, I think I'm a werewolf. I think that's what's happened, oh, and I'm going crazy, and I'm having all these weird things. And so, like, it's cool that there's no secret that he's hiding, and everybody's a bit like, I don't know what to do with this, but okay. <laughs> and he keeps having these wild dreams, and there's this one dream, especially that is so weird and so cool, and and I guess it's kind of gore shadowing in which. He's he I, I guess he imagines himself back at his family home and he's doing some writing and he's got young siblings there and his parents there and there's a ring at the door. And one of his parents, I think his father, opens the door. Mm. And in bursts these team of SS paraphernalia wearing ghouls. So they all have like ghoulish faces, but they're all wearing like stormtrooper outfits. And amazing. It always feels weird to me when I think like like, I now hear the word Stormtrooper and I don't think of World War II, I think of Star Wars. Yep. And it's weird that he just lifted that term. And it was only, like, 32 years after World War II. And, and to me, that's such a short time. Like, 32 years ago, what was that, 1992, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain was putting out records and uh, I don't know else, what, what else was going on in 1992. It was the... Uh, the Olympic Games where Kieran Perkins won his first gold medal. I can't believe they're the two things that I managed to cling to. That was that but was, it feels that like was recent. 1992. It feels like recent enough history, you know? Like and so it'd be like us like flashing back to George H. W. Bush's you know, Iraq war and being like, oh now what was some cool stuff there that I can put into my put into my Yeah, if you called no, if you called a prison planet in your sci fi Abu Ghraib. Oh god. Like that is yes. that is what it would be like. It would be like Strange. that. But an, but anyway, he has so that they burst through the door mm. and they graphically kill the entire family including slitting his throat with like blood spurting everywhere. Ugh. And and this is just one of a whole bunch of dreams he keeps having, some of which it's a POV, first person POV of like running through the forest, mm. one of which is like him attacking a deer, and then there's this one of the stormtroopers attacking the family. And so he's having that Plus, he's having Jack. And the other thing about Jack is it's like every time he appears to David, he's more decayed. 
So the first Amazing. time you see him, he has this giant like wolf slash across his face and there's sort of exposed organs and tissue and things, but he's still relatively intact. But by the time David is staying at Alex's place, Jack has decayed even further and the color from his whole body is gone and he's become a lot more zombie-like. Yes. So Jack's like, you need to do it now because you're going to become a werewolf tonight. David refuses. And when the full moon rises, David transforms into a werewolf. Okay, so Jonathan Landers had another regret for this film. And not enough nudity in the werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> well, there isn't well, there isn't any there's there's a lot of like conspicuously placed things so we don't see David's penis when he turns into a werewolf. Mm. But the werewolf transformation scene goes for so long. And it's like when you watch those early computer animation films where they were so excited about computer animation that it was almost the point of them. And then you watch it now and it's like, oh, wow, this is going forever and this looks like (laughs) shit. And obviously this is 1981, so this is all practical effects, but he becomes a wolf. It just takes so long. (laughs) It takes so long. I'm going to take a guess and say it's a two-minute long scene. And if you can imagine that in a single room with the practical effects of a man turning into a werewolf, like, it's boring. And so that's the one thing where I'm like, yes, Jonathan Landers, that is a regret that is valid. Oh, sorry. So, so he holds that regret. Of he like, holds yeah, that okay. regret. Yeah, nice. So he prowls the streets and the London Underground, killing six people. And they're good scenes. It's like, they're basically like, imagine you take all, all the kill scenes in a slasher film that are usually like sprinkled mm. apart and just condense ah, them yes. into one montage. Highlights package, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's him terrorizing a young couple. There's him terrorizing some uh, displaced, you know, people experience homelessness in like mm. a, in, in a, in a junkyard. And then there's him on an underground attacking like a tough businessman. And we rarely see the wolf. Yeah, nice. But when we do, it's on all fours and it's quite horrific. Like it doesn't look like a wolf. It looks like a monster. He wakes up the next morning naked on the floor of a wolf enclosure at the London Zoo with no recollection of what happened and returns to Alex's flat. After learning of the previous night's murders and realising that he's probably responsible, David unsuccessfully attempts to get himself arrested in Trafalgar Square. Like, he basically goes up to a cop and he's like, I did all those murders. And the cop's like, what's all this then? Leave it out. Leave it out. And he, like it's it's this is a pretty funny scene, although there's like there's some there's some like homophobic language that hasn't aged very well. Mm. But he's basically like fuck the queen, and like he's just trying to basically <laughs> insult English things and just say them really loudly. But it doesn't work because obviously the police is onto him. He's like I'm onto you, governor, and then sort of <laughs> then he leaves. I love this character of, like, Shag the London cop. (laughs) What's all this then? (laughs) Telling people to leave stuff out all the time. It's good. It is almost as good as James Caan. Hey, I'm American. (laughs) Hey, I'm grabbing my crotch over here. (laughs) He calls his family to say he loves them, then loses the courage to slit his wrists with a pocket knife. David then goes walking through... You know, the inner, I guess the Trafalgar Square area. And I think pre all of these cities being gentrified, I think it's the same for New York. In the early 80s, inner city London was a bit murky and there was lots of like adult cinemas and like adulty stuff, I think. 
So as he walked, yeah, yeah, I I think that I think uh, maybe I'm completely Mm. wrong. This is not research, show, but (laughs) that's that's the vibe I get, and it's a vibe I like. I know that's true for New York back in the day, or at least certain boroughs in New York. Anyway, yeah, um, he sees Jack now, who is like insanely decayed outside an adult movie theater. He goes inside, and this this probably speaks to, I, I guess. John Landis's, Where John Landis's head's at, yeah, yeah, Because yeah. we go inside and we see quite a bit of this porno. Because uh, John's like, if only we'd had more of this kind of stuff <laughs> at the start of the film. He's like, I had one scene, which was cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, but while we as the audience are in there with David and Jack watching it, Jack introduces David to his previous night's victim. So there's not just Jack, there's now seven of them who are furious with David, who are all basically like, we just want some peace. You need to kill yourself. Then they discuss. Sorry, all the ways- can I have can I have that again? All seven of the victims. So remember, he killed six people the, yeah, yeah, the night yeah, before, yeah. and Jack as well died. So there's now seven victims who are all stuck in this limbo. Yeah, awesome. And they're basically like, "You have to do this." And David's like, "I can't." And because I, I think full moons last more than one night, I don't. Okay. So anyway, either whatever happens, he turns into a werewolf again inside the cinema and just terrorizes it. Somebody runs out the door, screams onto like, I think they're in Trafalgar Square, screams into Trafalgar Square. There's a monster down there, bar the doors. And so a cop goes down, sees David as a werewolf, runs back upstairs, closes it. We, we see, like, banging on the inside of the door. All these cops arrive. There's maybe 15 cops pushing this door closed. And what happens next is an iconic horror scene that I'm amazed I haven't seen for this long. I can imagine in 1981 this would have been talked about on playgrounds. This would have been Imagine's, discussed yeah, at water okay. coolers. This would have been, like, stuck in people's imaginations. Because what happens... Next is absolute chaos and absolute carnage. So there are these cops and also the de- remember the detective who's like, nothing happened. Mm. I'm not asking. So he shows up with his protege and they're all at this door. David breaks through the door, immediately decapitates Inspector Villiers and so bites his head off and throws his head into the crowd. This creates havoc. So people start running everywhere. But obviously, like, this is, like, there are so many cars here as well because it's, it hasn't quite been pedestrianized as much as it has, I think, now. So people are running, but cars are also going. So people keep getting run over and hit by cars. Oh, so, so it's, like, actual panic, and people are dying left, right, and center. And he is killing people as well as he's running through the streets. So everyone is seeing this werewolf. He's not hidden anymore. People are seeing this fucking werewolf run through the London streets. People are panicking and nobody can really focus on what to do. So people are now being like thrown through glass. They're being run over by cars. They're being like knocked to the side because of all this chaos that's going on. Eventually, the police surround him in an alleyway. Alex arrives and runs down the alley and is like, I know him. I think I can reach him. So she runs down the alley and tries to calm David by saying that she loves him. And there's a moment where the eyes of the werewolf look like they understand. Then David lunges forward at Alex, 
Yes. And he's shot by like a million bullets. Yes. The bullets kill him? The bullets, bullets kill him. The first, kill the he, first world. He reverts yeah, yeah. to a naked human, and that's the end of the film. Oh, Shag, I really liked that. It's a good ending as well. And I like that we're also liberating our sort of lost souls in limbo. I, like, I wasn't sure I was going to enjoy that idea. Like, you, you feel like it's sort of John, John Landis, whose expertise is men talking to other men, um, <laughs> shown by his other films. He's like, how can I get another man in here? Um, oh, there we are. We'll have an undead man walking out and talking to this man. Um, and so, look, yeah, I just sort of thought it was a way for him to write a film that he knows how to write. But I, I find that quite sophisticated to have the chorus of your murder victims being like, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. I think almost that's the most stunning element. But, but I, I also like taking narrative responsibility um, in that final act of like, oh, yeah, this, like, this is just total pandemonium. Mm. And having the werewolf lunge. Shag, I, like, I can see why you enjoyed this. This is, this, is, this is good fun. Plus there's a little... You know, workplace docudrama about life in a 1980s London hospital in the middle as well. You get to learn something. It just needed more graphic <laughs> sex scenes. That's the one regret. Should Spooko have more graphic sex scenes? Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?